Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Do you remember the last time you volunteered? My free time and my schedule to volunteer is devoted primarily to my kids' schools. And that makes me feel guilty about not volunteering with other organizations in my community. But it's not easy finding extra time between job and home responsibilities. How about you? Do you find time to volunteer despite work and family commitments? Today, we consider whether altruism in America is on the decline. Coming up, should our country do more to encourage young people to take a year off before, during, or after college for a year of service? We'll learn more about the national nonprofit promoting this idea, appropriately named Service Year Alliance. We'll also hear from Connecticut-based groups about their efforts to attract volunteers, and we want to hear from you. Is it easy or difficult to find community members to donate their time to your organization? You can join us, 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. And as always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome our first guest to the show. Uh, Joining us by phone is Linda Poon, staff writer at City Lab. Uh, Linda, welcome to Where We Live. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, We invited you on because you wrote this really interesting piece, uh, Why Americans Stopped Volunteering. So what motivated you uh, to look into this? Yeah, so we were looking for um, something to write on the anniversary of 9-11. And um, as many people will know, 9-11 was sort of um, designated as the National Day of Service and Remembrance, this idea of turning a day of terror into something that, you know, where you you know, commemorate the um, survivors um, by doing good. And so um, the nonprofit that, that sort of advocated for this um, also runs now runs sort of a um, coalition of service organizations. And they claim that, you know, every year 30 million Americans partic- participate in some way um, on this day, um, making it the sort of the biggest event on um, sort of uh, America's char- charitable calendar. Um, so we were wondering what about the other 364 days, um, you know, and uh, luckily um, we found a study by uh, University of Maryland, my alma mater, and we just wanted to look at, you know, what is sort of the state of volunteering when there is no big event attached to it, right? And Linda, we'll be talking more about that report uh, in just a few minutes. But I am curious, so after 9-11, how many Americans were uh, volunteering their time to an organization? What was the rate? Do we know? Yeah, so um, according to the report, um, you know, it was, it sort of reached its peak um, uh, between 2003 and 2005. So the immediate years after uh, the 2001 attack, um, it reached 28.8% and stayed there for three three years. Um, so that's, um, I guess, encouraging. Um, but then afterwards, um, the researchers did start to find it starting to decline. Um, and it hasn't really pushed that threshold, that 28.8% volunteering rate since 2005. Um, and in 2015, it even dipped to its lowest at 24.9%. So um, it's on a decline. And in some areas, it's stagnant. Um, we don't really see much increase 
um, in volunteer rates uh, across the nation. Uh, you referenced a national organization that tracks uh, volunteerism. Uh, is it My Good Deed? Tell us about their work, and uh, you know, are they responsible for really promoting uh, volunteering in communities? Um, so, from what I understand, My Good Deed was started by um, New Yorkers who witnessed the event, who were sort of shocked by what they were seeing, um, and this, and they, you know, wanted to turn this like I said, turn this uh, day into something more positive, something, you know, where people are not, um, you know, focused so much on, on the terror, which, you know, in its own right, um, it needs to be remembered. But also uh, they wanted a chance for America to, you know, put their, whether it's anger, their grief um, into something bigger. Um, so they made it sort of a charitable day of giving. Um, and like I said, they sort of organized coalitions and they, of national service organization, and they get, you know, Americans to, you know, if they don't volunteer on a regular basis, at least come out on this day um, and and do their part. It's been 18 years since 9-11. If you're listening right now and you remember... you know, answering this call to serve your community, you can join us, 888-720-WNPR or 888-720-9677. On the phone with me, Linda Poon, staff writer at City Lab, uh, as we learn more about uh, a story that she wrote about how uh, the rate of Americans volunteering uh, across the nation has declined. Her story based on a report from the Do Good Institute at the School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland. Uh, to tell us more, joining us on Skype is one of the researchers of that report, Nathan Dietz. Uh, Nathan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. So tell us more. We heard uh, Linda mention uh, that the the rate of Americans volunteering really peaked uh, right after 9-11 over the, and then over the next three years, but now it's a decline to around uh, 24, 25 percent. So what are some of the reasons why fewer Americans are volunteering, Nathan? Well, I think that uh First of all, uh, historically, if you look back even farther than uh, 2001, 2002, um, by, the, uh, by the time we reached the early 2000s, the period right immediately after 9-11, the volunteer rate had been at an all-time high uh, over the entire period where the Census Bureau had collected official data on volunteering. Um, and uh, at the time, I was working for the Corporation for National and Community Service. Uh, my co-author, uh, Bob Grimm, of, of this current report, and I, among others, wrote a report that looked at the longer historical trend. Um, since then, 10 years later, once we incorporated data from 2015, we saw that all the gains that we had realized as a nation in the volunteering rate uh, in the early 2000s had completely dissipated, uh, so that the, the mid-70s volunteering rate was about the same as the mid-2010s volunteering rate. And it does raise the question of uh, what changes might have taken place in America over that time period, uh, especially in the last 10 years, that, um, that have, have resulted in the declines in volunteering that we've seen. Um, we've tried to take a systematic look at that, uh, starting with a deep dive into uh, various uh, state uh, patterns in the, the states and in the major metropolitan areas to see whether or not it was local. Uh, it was driven by changes in, in a few local areas. We found that in general, uh, many of the biggest declines were found in suburban areas and rural areas as opposed to uh, urban areas, central cities. And that's 
pretty striking because suburban and rural areas are the places where volunteering rates have traditionally been the highest. And why um, is so, that? Well, I think it's because of the, the, the nature of communities in those areas, in those parts of the country. Um, they're very, uh, I think the neighborhoods maybe uh, interact a little bit more. People within neighborhoods interact with one another more. Uh, Community-based organizations are, are, I think, more important to uh, uh, more important to the residents, especially uh, traditional organizations like uh, churches, congregations, and uh, uh, schools. Um, families are also uh, family is the third major, uh, I think, uh, determinant of whether or not someone is going to have the is going to grow up with uh, a volunteering uh, just an mm -hmm. inclination toward volunteering um, and uh, I think those are families are, are also very strong influences in these areas um, so what we're seeing when we see declines in those in volunteering in those places I think uh, we have to look for declines in, uh, in the influence of those institutions and what about um, socioeconomic uh, status? Is that a factor? What did you find between uh, those in the middle class and, and, and upper class Americans? How often are they uh, volunteering? That is, um, th that's a really interesting trend. We're actually working on that for the follow-up report, which is the next one in our series, uh, because we're looking at the volunteering and giving patterns of, of young adults, people in their early 20s to mid-30s. And uh, what we find is that uh, well, first of all, I think that um, in general, uh, socioeconomic status has always been a strong predictor of volunteering. People who come from higher income families, people with better education especially, um, have, uh, have always volunteered at higher rates. But there have also been these uh, traditional markers of adulthood, people who get married, people who have kids, uh, people who graduate college who, who start working full-time, those have traditionally been points of entry into the volunteer workforce. And uh, what we're finding, especially over the past 10 years, is that not only are young adults somewhat less likely to have achieved those, uh, those milestones in their lives um, by the time that they reach their mid-30s, not only that, the people who do reach those milestones are volunteering less often. So. We're, we're looking at that and we're thinking it's not just demographics, mm. it's, a, it, it's a change in the way that young people approach uh, the, uh, the role of volunteering in their lives, even after they've made it, quote unquote. Uh, Nathan Dietz is on Skype uh, with us, a senior researcher at the Do Good Institute at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. We're talking today about the decline in the, the number of Americans who volunteer uh, in their communities. Uh, if you're someone who struggles uh, to find time to volunteer or um, if you make it a point uh, to fit it in, we want to hear from you, 888-720-WNPR or 888-720-9677. Uh, we were talking about about uh, young people, uh, uh, Nathan, and uh, Tucker tweeted, at my college, there was a really prestigious program that came with a full scholarship. It put a lot of emphasis on volunteering, which, while great, it comes at the detriment of students who need to work for money to get by and save for college. Uh, how do you respond to that tweet? I, well, first of all, I think that uh, that's, that's a good example of the types of challenges that, uh, that young people face when they're in college. I think that uh, among those 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 basic pressures besides those basic pressures you're you're there to learn you're there to get good grades and graduate but if you have to work to earn a living in addition then that's just an additional source of pressure in addition to all that 
chances are that you're just uh, you're, you're being uprooted from a life that you had known, you know, in some cases since you were since you were born and placed into an entirely new life, an entirely new community, oftentimes an entirely new place. It's just a lot to grapple with. Uh, I think the reason why programs like this exist, try to try to provide incentives for people to volunteer, uh, are just uh, they're trying to overcome all these forces of work that, that can inhibit young people from just um, from participating more because they feel they need to hunker down and just finish, succeed in college. Um, I think that that is a um, that that's a pattern. If uh, if uh, someone can graduate college. And, uh, and really sort of learn the value and appreciate the value of a, of a meaningful volunteer experience, then that's a lesson they can carry with them, maybe when the pressures on them start to lift a little. You can join our conversation, 888-720-WNPR. Uh, Mary is calling from Hartford. Mary, you're on where we live. I just want to say people really can't afford to volunteer anymore. And as government services are shrinking, I've been uh, volunteering in, on environmental issues for over a decade. Um, what I've noticed is there's a reliance on volunteers, but we need paid organizers. We need um, you can't do it alone. You need you need an organization that's going to recognize the value of volunteers repeatedly. Um, you need employers who will set aside volunteer work days, service days, and you need schools that are going to do that as well. And recognize the organizations and not make those organizations just episodic moments. There needs to be real long-term partnerships. Uh, thank you, Mary, for your comment. Uh, Nathan, did you want to respond? Well, only I, I would uh, just to say that I agree completely. I think that um, organizations uh, – Organizations, in a lot of cases, well, in almost all cases, really, could benefit from having somebody on staff who was whose dedicated job, uh, paid job, was to, to manage and uh, and recruit volunteers. Um, I think, in general, just the idea that the the volunteer organization match needs to be a good one in order for the partnership to be successful and for everybody to have a worthwhile experience. That's really important. I think people flit in and out of the volunteer workforce. Uh, not so much because they don't care or because they're not interested in helping. It's just that it's hard for them to find the best match. And it wouldn't surprise me to hear that it's it's much harder today for some of the longtime volunteers uh, to, to find or keep matches that, that work for them. You can join our conversation, 888-720-WNPR. Uh, also with us on the phone is Linda Poon, staff writer at City Lab, who wrote about uh, this report uh, that we're discussing with Nathan, Nathan Dietz, who's a senior researcher at the Do Good Institute at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. Uh, Linda, in your story, you also spoke with a, a sociologist at the University of Vermont who said that she's actually more optimistic about uh, the state of, of volunteering uh, in America. Can you explain what her point was to you? Yeah, um, so she took a more qualitative look um, at Volunteer America, and she um, actually, she specifically studied sort of what happens after major disaster and major tragedies. Um, and what she her her point um, is uh, is that you know she doesn't think the hours and, and charitable donations really captured the sort of civic spirit entirely. Um, so what she did actually, um, she did a small study right after 9-11 where she interviewed um, about 23 volunteers um, 
they were, you know, they prepared food for rescue workers. They were translating for families. Um, they were helping with crowd control, etc. Um, so they, sorry, he interviewed them about sort of their immediate reactions to the event um, and their sort of motivations for getting involved. Then a few years later, she followed up with um, those same volunteers just to see how their quote-unquote spontaneous volunteerism sort of translate, translated or if it translated into them doing good in their communities down the line. Um, and what she found um, was that that one-time volunteering event really did stick with them because it was just so tragic, you know. Um, and in turn, they sort of uh, shifted their either their career or their sort of path in life. So one participant was a nurse who was helping out with the um, uh, rescue efforts, and she told um, the sociologist, her name is Alice Fothergill, I forgot to mention that, um, she told uh, Fothergill that, you know, years down the line, she, instead of working at a general hospital, she decided to work at a clinic that was um, serving uh, lower-income patients. Um, and then there was a massage therapist who pivoted to doing um, therapy for children near ground zero. So these are things where people sort of shift their career. They don't really count it as volunteering, um, but at the same time, um, they don't, they, you know, they do make a big impact on community. Um, they just don't really get counted into, they may not you know, necessarily get counted into census surveys. That's really interesting. And then the idea that, you know, people just helping their neighbor, they're not thinking about, uh, is that uh, necessarily volunteering? As you mentioned, uh, when they're being asked about the volunteer hours uh, they're dedicating. I want to thank Linda Poon, staff writer at City Lab, uh, for uh, sparking our interest in doing today's show, which is looking at uh, the rate of volunteering in America and the fact that it is uh, decreasing. Uh, Linda, we'll tweet out a link to your story at Where We Live. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Nathan Dietz will stick around with us again. He's senior researcher at the Do Good Institute at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. Uh, we're hearing from a lot of listeners about uh, today's show. Uh, Jaden writes, a great way to volunteer is getting involved with your local volunteer fire department. Uh, 88% of departments in the U.S. are mostly volunteer, all volunteer, uh, doing everything from fighting fires, emergency medical services, rescue, and more. And also Brett uh, tweets, I'm a pastor at a church in Centerbrook that cancels worship services and sends all of our members into town to do service projects for neighbors that need help. Sunday, we did an emergency roof repair, cut some trees down, and help someone who had recently had a brain tumor removed. You can join our conversation, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Do you remember your first time volunteering? Maybe it was through a church youth group or school club. Or if you're our technical producer, Kion Wolf, public radio. I have a confession. I didn't volunteer for anything until I was 27 years old. I was in my car and I heard Bill Henry, this iconic voice with Connecticut Public Radio, saying that they needed volunteers to answer phones for their upcoming fun drive. Now, as a lifelong public radio addict, I thought it would be pretty cool. I mean, maybe I'd get to meet some of my favorite broadcasters. So I'm just getting started in the phone answering room when John Dankosky pops in to say thanks to all of us for volunteering. As soon as I hear his voice, I know who he is. 
I start asking him questions. How long has he been in public radio? How did he become the host of a talk show? How is he also the news director? Does every employee in public radio do a thousand things in their job description? Who comes up with the ideas for your show? And on and on and on. After my shift was over, he gave me a tour of the newsroom and he offered me a position in their new internship program. Flash forward 12 years and I volunteered my time and expertise, mostly skills I've developed here all around my community in Hartford. But of all of these opportunities, I've got to admit that volunteering with Connecticut Public Radio was the best one. Sometimes all it takes is one opportunity that can change every little bit of your life for the better. That's WNPR's Kion Wolf. We're glad you took that first step, Kion. Uh, today on Where We Live, we're talking about volunteering, how it's declining uh, nationwide. Now that you're an adult, do you also struggle to find time volunteering? You can join us, 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, my guest via Skype is Nathan Dietz, who's a uh, senior researcher at the Do Good Institute at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. Uh, he and another researcher were worked on a on a, a recent report about the decline in volunteering. We also want to hear from listeners uh, today. Uh, Margo's calling from Newington. Margo, go ahead. Hi. Thank you for taking the call. I, I was just coming back from a breakfast event where a lot of volunteers were uh, recognized. It was the Travelers Championship Birdies for Charity uh annual celebration where uh, many of the organizations mentioned they couldn't survive without their volunteers, and even the Travelers Championship uh, really uses a lot of volunteers to make the event run. So I think those are local examples of hundreds of volunteers coming together for everything from the uh, Hartford Weaving Center and Festival Olympics to you know, major uh, public events. Well, thank you, Margot, for your call. Uh, Nathan, uh, we were just looking at all of the different people waiting to uh, give us a comment on the show, and they're all women. So we're kind of curious about who is most likely to volunteer today. Can you tell us more about the demographics? Sure. Uh, first of all, I think uh, I'm looking the stories uh, from people who have uh, who've had meaningful volunteer experiences and are talking about other people who have had meaningful volunteer experiences. That's the, the more airplay those stories get, the more attractive volunteering is going to seem to people and, uh, and the better the chances that the nation's volunteer rate is going to rise again. Um, demographically, I think uh, uh, women are more likely to volunteer than men. Uh, people who are married are more likely to volunteer than uh, people who are single or who've, who've been divorced. Parents are more likely to volunteer than non-parents. Uh, I think in the, the latter two cases, it's, uh, it's the influence of the, the groups of people, the circles of friends and acquaintances that you, uh, that you associate with who have uh, an influence on your decision to volunteer. Um, in addition, I think uh, something that's really important to note about the, uh, the life cycle is that uh, teenagers, people who are, uh, in, who are high school age, volunteer much more often, significantly more often than uh, people who are college age, whether or not the college age people are actually in school. And then over time, uh, the volunteer rate tends to gradually increase until it tops out for people who are in uh, their mid to late 40s, early 50s. And then it declines kind of, uh, um, kind of slowly. Um, but uh, generally speaking, it's the people who are uh, people who are pretty well established in life and their careers and their communities 
who are the most likely to volunteer. And those are the people who are uh, who typically are, are in what we call midlife. I'm also interested, uh, Nathan, uh, there is a, a large percentage of Americans who now claim no religious affiliation. And how does that play into um, someone's uh, likelihood of volunteering um, if they're not part of a church community? Yeah, that's I think a, that's going to be a really important question, I think, as time goes by. Uh, from the standpoint of strictly volunteering, the uh, the most common place for volunteers to, to do their service is with the religious organization like a congregation, but also um, the, someplace that isn't a church that's religiously affiliated. More people volunteer with those types of organizations than with any other type of, uh, of organization. So uh, if it's religious beliefs and religious affiliation that's, that's leading people to volunteer at those places, then uh, um, then that could that could be part of the, the reason for the decline. The, the thing to remember, though, about people who volunteer for churches and congregations is that they're they're much more likely to volunteer for other types of organizations than uh, than people who don't volunteer for churches or congregations. So, uh, if if you're looking at this from the standpoint of uh, organizations that need help, I think that anything that pulls people away pulls volunteers away from churches and congregations is going to have uh, that additional impact, negative impact. Uh, Michael's calling from Portland, Connecticut. Uh, Michael, you're on where we live. Hi. Michael, go ahead. Yeah. I am a Christian, and I do volunteer. You know, I started probably 12 years ago. I went to Thailand uh, for a couple weeks uh, to help build a bivocational school. And then uh, after Katrina hit, I spent many months going down to Biloxi, Mississippi to help uh, rebuild a church that had extensive damage because of flooding and stuff. I mean, it's a great way to give back, and sometimes you get more out of volunteering than you do the volunteer or who you're volunteering for. Uh, well, I have a quick question for you, Michael. You said it, you started about 12 years ago. So what was the catalyst? Was it your church community? Yeah, it was. I mean, I, yeah, it, it, it was the church community, and I always feel that I should be giving back because I'm pretty, pretty blessed uh, with my life. I think most Americans have more than they ever imagined. I mean, you go to a third world country and you see people living in poverty and they're happy to just have a roof over their head. Well, thank you for your call, uh, Michael. Uh, Margaret's calling from Southbury. Margaret, you're on where we live. Hi there. Um, Yeah, my name is Margaret. Um, I recently graduated from a graduate program in um, social policy and nonprofit management. and I had, there I had worked on a research project um, working on mega events and specifically the South Korean Winter Olympics that just occurred. Um, and I'm excited to hear about the volunteer research happening here in the U.S. And um, just my big takeaways from doing that research was based around um, how impactful and how important episodic volunteering is. I know of you were talking about episodic volunteering earlier, but it seems that um, trends are favoring episodic volunteering in terms of, um, you know, in maximizing involvement of extremely busy people. Um, and then also a really interesting trend of 
um, skills-based and learning-based volunteering. I'm actually involved in that kind of volunteering now as a young professional. Um, I'm involved in volunteering for organizations and have done a year-long national volunteering service um, to increase my skills, too. So just wanted to kind of highlight those two trends that I noticed in the research, um, mega-event volunteering and skills-based volunteering for, for youth, and was wondering if you two could speak to that. Well, thank you for your call. I'll go back to our guest on Skype, Nathan Dietz, who is also a researcher, senior researcher at the Duguid Institute at the University of Maryland. Uh, Nathan, did you want to respond to our caller? Uh, yes, because I think both both those callers had important parts of the message that I want I want people to understand about volunteering. Uh, it's not it, it it doesn't reflect badly on you. You should not feel bad for realizing that you. Uh, get something out of volunteering, that you enjoy it, that it provides benefits to you, that it's good for you. Um, That's a lesson that people who have volunteered their whole lives learn later in life. Uh, Volunteers just experience health benefits that people who don't volunteer are are less likely to experience. They they have better mental health, physical health. Uh, They're they're more integrated into their communities, as you might imagine, because they're they're working to help people. So the idea that uh, uh, the idea that you, you should feel good about helping uh, um, helping a community by volunteering, the idea that you should build your skills, that you should um, um, that, that you should experience professional benefits and social benefits from volunteering, uh, that's perfectly fine. That should be part of the bargain. Everybody should realize that those are those are attainable. Volunteer, if you volunteer, you can maybe experience those yourself. I like that point that you raised, Nathan, uh, because beyond just uh, signing up to volunteer, uh, the impact it makes on a community as a whole, um, encouraging people uh, to trust one another, uh, to, uh, as your research has shown, uh, people are less isolated uh, when they are uh, actively part of their community helping each other. Absolutely, yeah. I think that um, in places where uh, we... we, uh, People talk in the, the literature about the health benefits of volunteering in terms of a virtuous circle, which is that uh, in the, the phrase that comes out of a really famous article, scholarly article, is that volunteering helps keep healthy people healthy. Um, the, the idea is that uh, if, you're, if you're healthy enough to continue volunteering when you're older, then it's likely to preserve your health. And uh, the more, and in addition to, to giving you something enjoyable, something, a worthwhile experience, that, uh, that you take pleasure in, uh, it actually helps you it helps you stay well enough and uh, um, th- to to stay involved. I forget. Uh, Craig is uh, writing on Facebook. A few years back, my career allowed for some downtime on occasion. I looked for volunteer opportunities in my community and honestly had a difficult time finding anything. I contacted my church and signed up for some volunteer committees but never got callbacks. Uh, and Craig wants to know, is there a website that an individual can search for volunteer opportunities in their community? And so I wanted to bring into the conversation now Mara Cook, who's Director of Community Engagement and Marketing at the United Way of Central and Northeastern Connecticut. Mara, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So um, I'm going to make sure that you heard uh, Craig's question on Facebook, wanting to uh, find a website where he could figure out where are the best places to volunteer, who needs uh, his his uh, time. So can you tell us more about how the United Way uh, really facilitates all of this? Absolutely. So your local United Way is a great place to start if you're looking for volunteer um, opportunities. Um, Our United Way in particular, as well as our colleagues across the network, have really stepped into how are we mobilizing all of the resources that communities have to offer 
um, to help create a better life and future for children and families. And one way we do that is by mobilizing volunteer resources. So um, here in central and northeastern Connecticut, where I'm based, you can simply go to our website, www.unitedwayinc.org, and click volunteer, and it will bring you to a host of opportunities. Um, we really um, maintain a very large database of local um, opportunities in our region and, and slightly beyond. We also run many of our own volunteer programs, and so there's always uh, something to get involved in. And if you don't know where to start, give us a call, and we're happy to help. I wanted to ask you uh, just quickly, uh, Mara, uh, we got a tweet from uh, Lissa who wants to know how social media has changed the spirit of volunteering, noticing a lot of hyper-local involvement in town-specific Facebook Facebook groups. The Buy Nothing Project is a great one. But I'm curious if it's easier for people to click uh, donate uh, on their Facebook feed instead of actually giving up uh, you know, uh, hours uh, to actually go to a, a location and give their time that way? You know, that's a great question. I think at United Ways, um, we've seen actually um, some increases in the number of volunteers that we're mobilizing and some decreases in, in the dollars that are donated, right? And so I think what social media has done is it's made it easy to give in bite-sized um, portions, right? So you can give a lot to many or a little to many organizations. You can always participate and check in and share and give to, you know, uh, a family member or someone in town who's struggling um, with an illness, or you can give to your local um, food bank. And that's all great, right? We all, we all really want people to get involved in their community. And social media certainly makes it easier to do at the click of a button. But I, I do also think um, that there's power in people sharing their volunteer experiences on social media. And we've definitely seen an increase in that as well and inviting people to, to get involved. So I think we see it um, as a help to this cause of, of mobilizing more people to give their time. Um, and I think, you know, I heard a couple of callers earlier talk about the need for employers to to be a, a critical partner in this, the need for organizations to have dedicated people to support people who want to volunteer, um, and I couldn't agree more. Um, I think that um, we have a lot of great resources to help people get involved, but we need to give people the access to, to, to get there. Uh, Anne's calling in from Portland, Connecticut. Anne, go ahead. Yes, thank you for taking my call. I'm a regular blood donor with the Red Cross, and I have donated platelets and plasma for over 42 years. Well, thank you uh, for doing that for so long. Uh, and why did you decide to do those uh, specific things? Um, a friend of ours lost a dear friend in a uh, motor vehicle accident. And he lingered for a few days. Everybody was at the hospital wringing their hands saying, what could I do? What could we do? We want to do something. And the doctors encouraged everybody to give blood products. But what he really needed was platelets mm. to help him clot. So uh, this dear friend of mine started going to the Farmington Red Cross on a regular basis and donating platelets, and he encouraged me to do so. And I also learned that it could help people that have cancer. And I lost my dad to cancer when I was 12. Mm. So I said, you know what, this is something I could do and, and maybe save somebody else's life. And I feel closer to my dad when I do it. Mm. 
Well, thank you uh, so much, Anne, for calling in today to let us know um, how you give of yourself uh, to different organizations. Uh, I wanted to go back to Nathan Dietz, uh, who's joining us on Skype. So we're hearing a lot of different uh, uh, ways that people begin to volunteer, whether it is giving platelets, giving blood, uh, working through their church youth groups. And I, you know, I'm, I'm curious, too, um, when we think about the decline uh, of uh, the amount of Americans who are volunteering, Nathan, is some of that because there has been uh, attention on particular organizations, national organizations, about how that money is spent, if it's donated, if someone's not actually giving of their time, but donating to a charity? That, um, I, I think I'm sure that in some cases that uh, that's affecting pe- individuals' decisions to volunteer time or money. But I think that's an important question that uh, uh, um, more re- that we need more research just to, to learn about what's happening at the national level. Um, I, I think that in general, people are people are really kind of starting to wonder what's going on, not just with the volunteer workforce, but with the the donor. Uh, um, the, the the group of people who donate to charities. Period. At the same time as we're seeing, as we've seen declines in the size of the volunteer workforce, the number of people who are volunteering, the the percentage of people who volunteer, you're seeing, if anything, even more pronounced declines in the number of people who donate to charities. And uh, it could be that uh, people are just people have different uh, opinions, their their beliefs about how effective donating to charity is, but um, I, I don't. I haven't seen much direct evidence that suggests that there's been a a, a pronounced slide in uh, in opinions toward nonprofits and charitable organizations. I think if anything, people realize how important most people realize how important they are. But that just prompts the question: uh, Why are fewer people donating to charity, mm-hmm. and uh, and what, what what do we expect the impact of that to be? On uh, the the nonprofit and charitable sector to continue doing good, um, it it's not the problem. I think we found looking at the national stats we do have is not that there isn't enough money going to the charitable sector, um, because total dollars donated has not been declining uh, on on anything like that regular basis, but the number of people who are actually involved in donating has been declining, and uh, that shows no signs of stopping. Yeah. I want to take another quick call. Dale from Stanford. Dale, go ahead. Hi. Um, I just wanted to say that Stanford, to give a shout-out to Stanford, it has a robust community of volunteers. I'm retired, and I'm part of an organization called Women on Watch, most of whom are volunteer, are uh, retired women. And uh, we're grassroots. We do uh, political issues, environmental, gun control, uh, so many. And it's it's so incredibly satisfying to work with with this group, and we partner with an organization in New Hampshire called Grandmothers for a Brighter Future. And one other organization that both my husband and I volunteer with is called Building One Community, which provides myriad services to immigrants and refugees. And we, my husband teaches children in the summer, um, uh, tutors children, and I do uh, English as a, like a second language for, um, for immigrants. And it's, it's just incredibly satisfying. And to speak for one second to what one of your guests, it does make me feel healthier and happier to be doing this. Well, wonderful. Thank you, Dale, for your call. And Lisa from Milford. Lisa, uh, we have under a minute. Go ahead. Um, yes, I volunteer for Nourish Bridgeport in Bridgeport, and we're always looking for volunteers. Um, and if people want to do something fun, October 5th is our fun festival at our farmer's market, 
which money earned from there will support all of our outreach programs um, in the city of Bridgeport. So contact us and we'll get you into a volunteer position. Well, thank you, Lisa, for your call. Uh, it's been a, a full, almost full hour here, but we have to uh, say goodbye to our guest, Nathan Dietz, who's a senior researcher at the Do Good Institute at the University of Maryland's School of Public Policy. A really interesting report that you've put out. We'll make sure we share it with our listeners on Facebook and our website at wmpr.org slash where we live. Nathan Dietz joining us on Skype. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. Great to hear all the good news. And Mara Cook, we want to thank her as well, uh, Director of Community Engagement and Marketing at the United Way of Central and Northeastern Connecticut. Now, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nelpathangel. And coming up after the break, should all Americans devote a year of their lives to service, whether it's to a community organization or the military? We'll talk about that. And you can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. We've been talking about volunteering, and earlier we heard about why the number of Americans who volunteer has declined in recent years. But what if more was done to encourage people earlier in their lives to dedicate time to community organizations, schools, and other nonprofits? Would they likely continue that kind of work throughout their adult lives? Uh, Joining us now to tell us more about this idea of uh, getting a year of service uh, um, as being a... uh, uh, something that everyone does uh, is Jesse Colvin, CEO of Service Year Alliance. This is a nonprofit working to make a year of paid full-time service a service year, a common expectation and opportunity for all young Americans. Uh, Jesse, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thank you very much for having us and having uh, Service Year Alliance on this morning. I'm excited to be here. Uh, so tell us a little bit about Service Year Alliance and uh, how this mission started. Sure. Uh, so our mission is to make a year of paid full-time service, what we call a service year, a common expectation and opportunity for all young Americans. Um, and if, you're, if your listeners are feeling a little bit pessimistic after reading uh, the article that, that started this series of interviews this morning, uh, I have a couple of reasons to be optimistic. Um, so on a personal note, uh, the article, uh, Why Americans Stop Volunteering, absolutely resonated with me on a personal level. Uh, I was 17 when 9-11 happened, and it led me to volunteer to study Arabic in college and t- teach English to Iraqi refugees in Syria after college and led me to join the military. Uh, I volunteered for four tours in Afghanistan as an Army Ranger. Uh, but more broadly, uh, if you're feeling pessimistic, I have some good news and some better news. So the good news is our research shows that most young Americans actually do want to serve, and they would definitely serve. One in four young Americans, that's about a million young Americans a year, would serve. Uh, And the better news is when young Americans go through these service years, they come out on the other side and they talk about feeling stronger senses of ownership over their citizenship, a stronger bond with their fellow citizens. So we really think that a service year If you're worried about all the different ways our civic fabric is being torn apart, we think and we see Mm -hmm. service years as being the best antidote uh, in the long term. So it's interesting. So you come from a military background. Uh, We know that, what is it, about 1% of Americans will actually serve in the military. But the idea behind service year alliance is uh, getting young people involved. And it's not necessarily volunteering. They're finding paid full-time opportunities to give back to their community. 
That's absolutely right. Uh, I think for most folks, uh, if I talked about uh, what happens when you share a foxhole, whether it's Afghanistan or Vietnam, uh, and all the good that comes out in terms of building bonds with your fellow Americans, I think most people understand that. Uh, it's the same thing if you're working on a Habitat for Humanity project or in an AmeriCorps program in a classroom in Nebraska or Michigan or anywhere else. Uh, and to your point, about 70% of young Americans are not eligible uh, for military service, and there are only about 60 to 65,000 service year opportunities right now. Uh, so our job, our mission is to uh, connect those young people who want to serve and just haven't heard about opportunities uh, so they can have the opportunity. So how do you do that? So uh, people listening are probably, uh, they've heard of AmeriCorps or the Peace Corps, but in terms of giving back to a community closer to their home um, that's not part of these particular organizations, where do they go? How do they find those opportunities? Oh, thank you so much for asking. Uh, so if you're interested in a service year, uh, go to serviceyear.org. It's an online marketplace, and it will tell you all the opportunities across the country. And it will also tell you all the opportunities, depending on your interests, whether it's education or something related to climate change. It's all there. Uh, and we're also, uh, next week, uh, here in Washington, D.C., we're hosting the first ever uh, service community summit uh, where we're bringing together uh, the Service Your Community Changemaker Summit. We're bringing together for the first time community leaders from 10 communities across the country who are all using Service Years as a way to tackle the issues in their local communities, from education to opioids uh, to a host of other issues like workforce development. Uh, so if you happen to be in D.C., come to our summit. And if you're interested and you're listening or you have a child who might be uh this sounds like it might be up their alley, serviceyear.org. Yeah, I'm curious, when we talk about uh, full-time paid opportunities to give back to the community, are these opportunities that pay the bills or can help someone who might have a big uh, uh, student debt load to pay off, Jesse? Oh, yeah, thank you for asking. Uh, you are uh, signing up not for a year of luxury by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, these programs offer stipends, living stipends, um, but it is, uh, you are signing up for a, a, a tough and uh, gritty experience because you want to come out on the other side with grit and resilience. Uh, and your living stipend is, is certainly going to reflect that. And I'm also curious about how these um, opportunities either, um, you know, look to address uh, the diversity of volunteers uh, that are stepping forward or just looking at the different needs of U.S. communities. I mean, how is that, how is Service Year Alliance looking to address those, those issues? It's a huge part of our work. Uh, thank you for giving me a chance to talk about it a little bit. Uh, we, the reason we don't talk about volunteerism, we talk about a service year, is because uh, outside of a certain group of folks who can afford to, quote, unquote, volunteer for a year, uh, we want to broaden the opportunity of service years to communities across the country, especially for folks who come from financial circumstances where they can't just, uh, quote, volunteer for a year or have their parents help them out for a year. So we we focus a lot and we put a lot of time and energy into what we call our uh, diversity and inclusion and equity work. And that's reflected in some of the communities we are uh, helping bring about service years, whether that's Flint, Michigan or East Boston. Uh, and it's also reflected in the issues that we're using a service year to tackle. Uh, so whether that is education or opportunity for young people, um, the idea, if we do this right, is that a service here not only gives a, a common experience for all Americans, uh, but it also allows local communities to use these service year programs 
to tackle the issues in their own backyard that are most important to them. If I learned one thing in Afghanistan is that the folks on the ground uh, are the closest to ground truth. Um, so the way we do our work, and you, you would see it if you came to our Community Changemaker Summit next week, uh, is that we let the solutions bubble up from, from uh, bottom up. Well, I want to thank Jesse Colvin for joining us, CEO of Service Year Alliance. Again, this is a nonprofit working to make a year of paid full-time service a service year, which is a common expectation opportunity for all young Americans. We'll link uh, to that organization on our website. Uh, Jesse, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Lucy, thank you very much. And I would be a bad CEO if I didn't mention if you'd like to make a contribution. And we uh, we are funded by the generosity of patriotic and individual Americans. It's service year. Alliance.org. That's Jesse Colvin here on Where We Live. We did hear from a lot of listeners this hour. I wanted to read a couple of tweets. Uh, Magdalena writes, I volunteered for various charity events, golf, 5Ks, uh, put on by the Pettit Family Foundation, a wonderful local group benefiting the Connecticut community. Also, Kathy tweets, I'm a runner. Races wouldn't be possible without volunteers when I'm injured and or under-trained. I take time to give back to running community. And then she writes, full disclosure, I'm a Hartford Marathon Foundation volunteer ambassador. That's coming up uh, pretty soon uh, in our state. And Nora, who writes, AARP Connecticut spends uh, lots of time and energy training and making sure volunteers have input on how to work in communities, and they love their volunteers. Uh, Thank you for contributing to our show today, all the calls, tweets, uh, and Facebook comments. Uh, On Thursday, coming up on Where We Live, we're actually going to shift and talk about uh, the three out of four faculty today, today are not eligible for tenure, and many are adjuncts or part-time faculty without strong benefits or job security. So on Thursday, uh, we'll uh, look into what's the human cost of this model of education. We're going to find out, and we also want to hear from you. That's coming up Thursday. Uh, today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Special thanks to Katie Tolarski and Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>